0: Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. In this episode, we're going to talk about trunk-based development, what it is, what it isn't, different variations, techniques to use it. But before I dive into that, I want to give a quick update on the podcast. If you're a regular listener, you've noticed that I've been on hiatus for a while. I had a holiday come up. I had on office/studio renovation come up. I've had life come up essentially. But I'm excited to announce that I'm back in the saddle again and I have some exciting episodes in the pipeline. This episode you're listening to was recorded during my office renovation, so the sound quality may be lower than you're expecting, but I hope that won't detract too much from the content. A little background on the episode. Jason, my guest, reached out on LinkedIn to the to all of his connections and asked for people with experience with trunk-based development. And I thought that could make for a very interesting episode. So I invited him on. He was excited to join. So that's what we talk about is just trunk-based development. Some of my experiences, uh, different techniques to use trunk-based development. So I hope you'll find the episode interesting. If you have a question you would like to bring onto the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my contact details at jhall.io slash contact. If you have a topic that would be of general interest to the audience, Or maybe you have a topic that you'd like to talk about, but it's really very specific to your situation and wouldn't make for a good episode. I'm happy to talk to you about that, too. Go to jhall.io slash call, and you can borrow my brain for an hour. It's less expensive than you might think. Without further ado, let's jump on over to the interview. Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, We've... We've been connected on LinkedIn for I think a few months, and I'm always I always appreciate your content. You you always put a thoughtful twist on everything that you post. Uh, so I uh, just want to sh- shout out to uh, to you on that. Thank you for, for uh, making LinkedIn a better place. Uh, would you tell our guests, or I'm sorry, would you tell our audience? You're our guest. Would you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, and and why why we're on today to talk about trunk based development?
1: yeah sure i uh, come into like the kind of the development world from a non-traditional background um i didn't study computer science i didn't go to a boot camp anything like that i um, started off i studied biology in undergrad and i worked in marketing and business development and got really bored of that i moved into analytics and data science i guess before it was called that uh, buzzword and um just kind of navigated further and further, further towards like the software development, software engineering side of things and automating. Um, and then just kind of like took, took the full plunge. And um, two or three years ago now was like really just that's I just went full board for that and left the data science analytics stuff behind. Um, I still okay. kind of leverage that when I have to. But um, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how I ended up here. I, <clears throat> I currently work at a startup that's building a pretty cool app around connecting personal trainers with clients. And, um doing a bunch of golang based development. Um, cool. but I'm really interested in some of these concepts I've seen that have been around a long time um, and like how I can like practically take them into like a team setting for people who haven't even maybe even heard of them or done them. Um, so that's kind of like the the space'm I'm, I'm coming from in this in this uh, episode.
0: That's great. So so now, at the moment, you're, you're doing software development yourself, right?
1: Yeah, right now, I'm a, it's a very small team. So I'm just an individual contributor. I actually enjoy that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I guess, like, old for the tech world, you know, I kind of <laughs> got into it. I didn't get into my end of my 30s, you know, and so yeah. um, I, I'm kind of like an old guy in that regard. But I just I really enjoy the like, individual contributor aspect of like, here's, here's kind of like a hard problem, or here's some like, Complex flow or some complex business logic, we need to map out. Like, how do we how do we go about doing that? And um, yeah, I just I kind of like learned about myself that I like to lead from the front and not necessarily be a a people manager. Um, And so it's 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 a good fit for me. Yeah, in that regard.
0: Great. So, so the initial question. Now, I know before we started recording, you, you said you had more than just one question, and that's great. We can talk as long as you want. Uh, but your initial question, the one that sparked this uh, this episode on LinkedIn, was about trunk based development. Uh, do you want to describe the way you're doing branch management right now, and then sure. uh, and then we'll talk about trunk based.
1: Yeah. So the way I'm doing it now is kind of the way I was taught. I don't know a few a few jobs ago now, kind of like the first job I had where I was like in in some sort of like role where I was actually coding, uh, you, you know, and it was going into production application and stuff like that. And it's, it's the kind of like, I guess, GitHub flow or kind of some sort of like modified Git flow or GitHub flow where you have a main branch and we have feature branches coming off of that. And then the feature branches can get deployed into like a lower environment for testing. And then when the, the PR is, you know, fully completed, then we can merge it into main and have you know, some pipelines kick off to do a production deploy. So that's kind of been the, the general flow, some variations of that um, over the last few years. And I keep running into like bottlenecks, like constant bottlenecks. <laughs> and so I even see a lot of people online like, hey, trunk based development is like uh, that plus, you know, several kind of other uh, ideas or methodologies together can be like really, really fast, incremental, highly tested software. So Uh, I've been trying to educate myself on on those things and um, I'm try to to bring my skills up to a level where I could feel comfortable taking it to a team and be like, hey, let's let's try this out.
0: Nice. So it sounds like at the moment you have two long-lived branches, main, and I don't know what your other one's called, develop probably or stage, something like that.
1: We don't even have that. So we we really, now we just have main and we we feature branch off main. We try to keep it small. And my understanding of the stuff I've read about trunk-based development is like, you can do that, but it needs to be really, really short-lived. But the preference is to just be confident that your commits to main are or trunk are tested and, and validated.
0: Awesome. So actually, it, it sounds like you're not as far away from trunk based uh, as is maybe I initially thought. Um, so uh, just for context, and anybody listening, if, if you're familiar with this workflow, uh, a, tr- a full Git flow, uh, usually has two or sometimes three, maybe even four long lived branches. So you have main or sometimes called production, where your production code is 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 rolled and deployed. And then I'll just simplify for the sake of conversation right now, but you can have many stages, but usually we'll just say two for for today, then there's a develop one. Uh, so usually make a, a branch off of develop, make your changes, and then you merge back into develop that gets deployed potentially to a staging server or something where uh, maybe QA people run tests against it or whatever. Once you're confident that you're you're ready to merge then maybe then you either merge your feature individually again, from that branch into main maybe with cherry picks or something or maybe you merge the whole branch all at once if you harden the whole thing together so that so GitFlow has the multiple stages with each long lived feature branches so you're, you're already a step closer to trunk based than than that which is going to probably make the transition easier but it sounds like you have long lived branches how long do your branches typically uh survive are they days or weeks or, or even longer uh,
1: typically days um yeah we try i mean we try to keep the scope relatively small um, so that, you know, there's not as much cognitive load to review, and um, you're not pushing as big a change that could, you know, potentially have unintended side effects, um, and it's easier to test. Yeah, that's that's kind of the, the thing we're doing now. I had done that where we had multiple long-lived branches, like a main, a dev, even a staging, or pre-prod, or something like that, and that just, boy, was like, it was awful, because it's just like, there's so many branches, and they get out of sync, and then multiple pipelines are running into each other. And yeah, um, you're on a waiting list, to QA stuff in an environment. And it's just like, I I kept feeling like there's got to be a better way. Like, this is so slow. Um, so that's kind of what has push, pushed me this way.
0: Probably the next step here is to define what trunk-based development is. And, and there are two flavors of trunk-based development. Um, and I think what you're asking about is the pure flavor, which is uh, where you. You kind of just commit straight to, to trunk without without uh, pull requests at all without feature branches um so let me talk about that first and then i'll talk about the sort of less pure version uh, which is kind of closer to what sure. you're doing so i don't have a lot of experience with pure trunk based development I, and, and and there's a simple reason that i'll, I'll explain in a minute um, but the teams that do it uh the way they they do that they usually works I, th- I think it works better on smaller teams but I, I suppose if you're disciplined enough it could work on a larger team um Usually, you do it with pair programming. So you, you have two people sitting at the keyboard together. Uh, you pull out, you update master, so you're at the latest version. You make your changes probably over the course of 20 minutes to an hour, so it's a fairly short session. You have something that uh, something incremental that works, uh, and you push it to master. And at that point, uh, a CI/CD pipeline type thing kicks off and runs tests against master. If you have somehow accidentally broken master, now hopefully everybody's uh, being uh, completely disciplined and they're running their tests locally before they do this and and there's never a risk of breaking master. But sometimes maybe you break master accidentally, uh, it goes red, and then basically the whole team stops working until master's working again. So hopefully that only happens once every few weeks or something. Um, Mm -hmm. But but that's the theory behind the the, the so-called pure trunk-based development. So you're literally... Pushing to trunk. And if you push and there's a conflict, then you do a, a, a rebase or something and try again, mm-hmm. uh, until it works. So that's the pure trunk based development. What I think most teams do at least first, and this is what I usually do, um, is it, it's more like what you described, but with short lived feature benches. So I, I still branch off of, of, uh, master and I still create a, a pull request. Uh, but I, I often those pull requests maybe only take me ten minutes, and then I create a request. So it's it's a very small amount of work, um, and then it it maybe goes through review or maybe doesn't, depending. You know, if I was pair programming with somebody, I probably wouldn't go through a second review process. I would just mm-hmm. let the tests run and then merge. But the, the the and this is the reason I prefer this approach, uh, although. Many people disagree with me, and that's fine there there's room to disagree. Uh, the reason I prefer this approach is I like the confidence that my tests have passed before I merged a master, yeah, and with a pull request, even if there's no human actually uh uh manually reviewing the code, at least I know that my tests are passing. of course, that's only useful if you have tests <laughs> yeah uh, and if you're so. at, a, at a project that doesn't have tests yet, then then there's no assurance there either so so broadly speaking those are the two flavors of t- trunk based development uh one is pure trunk based development going straight off of master uh, or main or trunk whatever it's called and the other is this sort of short-lived feature branch version and it sounds like you're kind of in a long live feature branch version That's yeah. similar in principle but i think the missing key for the missing piece for you is what i would call continuous integration and i don't mean a ci server i mean continuous integration the practice of integrating your code continuously, uh, which I think Martin Fowler defines as integrating at least once per day. So so if you mm-hmm. if you buy that, that rule or by that definition, then a maximum that the maximum time a feature branch should live is is 24 hours or maybe eight hours okay. if you want to count working hours. Um, so we can talk about that. I mean, I don't know if that's the way you want to go here. We could talk about strategies yeah. to make that easier and, and, and uh,
1: yeah, I'm definitely interested in that because, yeah, that's, that seems to be kind of like, so that's kind of, that's kind of like the breakdown I've seen online was the the two camps, uh, kind of what you described. Um, but our, you know, the, the problem I've seen is like not just where I currently work, we, we do get some that go in a day, which are really short, a little s- small scope on a, mm-hmm. on a branch. But we, this, us and our teams I've been on in the past, we tend to, bre- future branches can linger over days or even a week. And mm-hmm. then you end up with this issue that you're someone else. There's already been several other things that have gone into main in that week. And so now you're you're pretty far behind and you've got to rebase uh, and, and fix uh, any issues and kind of go through this whole review process again. And um, I, I, for one, am a huge fan advocate for like pair programming because mm-hmm. like I had a really um, good kind of mentor when I started programming that we did a lot of pair programming nice. and um, like I found that immensely helpful for like just thinking through and talking through how you're working on things. So, mm-hmm. um, that aspect of it appeals to me. Yeah, that's, I'm definitely the, that in that camp, I think I like to see all the tests pass as like, sort of like a safety measure before mm-hmm. I, I cut the merge. Um, one thing I am curious about and I don't know how this relates to that, but, like on, on something going into like your, your main, uh, branch, like your, your production code base, we typically like will cut a release uh, periodically, not like on a cadence, but like, I don't know, once a day or something like that, if several merges go in and we'll cut a new release and then the release, the cutting of the release will trigger a new pipeline for, um, you know, you know, actually deploying to the production environment. So mm-hmm. like, there is even a safety check there that if I were to push something into main, um, it's not immediately going to yeah. To the production applications, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if that's what what that's considered or not, but yeah, I, I'm curious to hear more about like how do you, how what what is like because I see so many conflicting definitions of like what is CI, <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, so that's kind of like I guess that would probably be a good starting okay. place.
0: Well, yeah, why don't I walk through the rest of the tra- traditional CI CD pipeline and and provide my sure. my definitions, which will differ from other people sometimes. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think the, f- the most important thing uh, to start with is understanding that, that, that most of these define practices, not tools. Uh, tools are there to enable the practices, uh, and, and CI is a great example. Continuous integration is, it, it's all in the name, but we forget that all the time. It's about integrating continuously. I mean, if I go to a conference, I've done this a couple of times, I, and I'm speaking uh, or, or at a meetup or, or whatever, and I ask a show of hands who uses CI, you know, like 80% of the room raises their hand. And then I say, how many of you have a feature branch that lived more than a day? And half the hands go down. And you know, how many of you uh, had more than one developer working on that uh, on that code over the last couple of days? You know, and hands go down. And how you know, how many of you? Know, so I, you know, I do that, and it turns out most people aren't actually doing CI, even though they think they are, because they're using a quote CI tool. So if you're not integrating regularly, uh, which should be a minimum of once a day, if not ten or fifteen or twenty times a day, you're not doing continuous integration. Uh, however and this is where the the confusion comes from to enable that you need to be able to run your tests very quickly i mean if it takes an hour to run your test suite or 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 worse it takes six hours to wait for the manual uh test developer guy to run through a bunch of manual uh, test scenarios there's no possible way to integrate that quickly so so that's where the confusion comes from is we have a tool that has become known as a ci tool or a ci pipeline that enables us to do this continuous integration the next step from there usually, uh, or, or logically is continuous delivery, uh, which is the name of Dave Farley's old book. Uh, I know you mentioned in the mm-hmm. before the recording you're reading his new one. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. Yeah, um, but his old book was called continuous delivery. And uh, it's a great book too. Um, and it's about the idea that every time you merge to, to master, uh, you build a deployable artifact. And this is really a really, it sounds like you're close to this, maybe, um, maybe it's not automatic, mm-hmm. but you have a button. So it's at least, it's at least easy. Um, and the the big advantage to this is you never run into a surprise uh, that, oh, oh, we're ready to delete release. Oh, but the release is broken for some reason, maybe some dependency from NPM changed or or something happened unexpected and, and we can't release. Sure. So with continuous delivery, you, you have confidence that after every merge, within a few minutes, maybe 20 minutes, or something, it's built an artifact, whether that's a Docker image or an APK you could send to the uh, Google Play store or whatever. Uh, maybe it's not actually going anywhere, but at least it's ready, so it could go somewhere.
1: Oh, that's that's cool. We actually do do that. So um, yeah, that's exactly how our our main uh, merge setup is. So any merge to main builds, uh, builds a Docker image and um, saves it in our, uh, you know, image repository on on AWS, and then it doesn't actually get deployed unless we cut unless we right. trigger the release. Okay. Um, so we sort of we sort of do Yeah, it, it sounds outside. like you're
0: doing continuous delivery. Uh, but you're probably not doing the, the next one I'm gonna describe, which is continuous deployment. And that's the idea that it just takes it one step further, and it automatically deploys as soon as you as soon as the artifact is ready. Uh, and there are many business reasons you might not want to do that. Uh, the, the, an easy, obvious example that everybody understands is you're building a mobile app and you have 100 developers uh, each merging 10 times a day and you don't want to send 1,000 updates to your mobile clients every every time uh, you update. Yeah. So you probably want to batch those and not release until maybe the end of the week or the end of the month or something like that. So, And, and there are many other business cases too that you wouldn't want to do continuous deployment. But I, I honestly can't think of a single scenario where continuous delivery doesn't at least make sense to, to at least practice the automatic art of building an artifact. Uh, I, I don't know of a scenario where that wouldn't make sense. So, so that's, yeah. that's a really a high level overview of, of kind of the software release pipeline architecture that you're probably hearing a lot of buzz about. I, I hope that that helps break down the little pieces. Um, and it sounds like you're, you're actually not terribly far away from uh, a good place you're, you're already doing continuous delivery uh, and you have an easy release process. Um, so should we go back and talk about some of the strategies for for making those pull requests smaller
1: we the kind of for the CI part of having your tests run um, which which to me like is really got what got me interested with like coupling with like test driven development because you kind of like build that that flow uh, like at the same time um and that that's like a good synergy between those two was that um we're our ci tool that we're using uh, i've been trying to work on you know dependency caching and some other like strategies to like speed up the they're already pretty fast like any any commit takes like you know four or five minutes to like build and te- run the test but I like want it I want it faster than that because like it's just nice to be able to p- commit really frequently and see things pass and so that that's something we're actively trying to to cut down the times on to to see those things faster that feedback, the feedback loop faster but yeah I guess um yeah I'd be interested in like how do we how do we like maybe, maybe we say we'd like stick with this kind of like featuring feature branching off of main, like, how do we trim trim down this, you know, the scope or the units of work for and some of that kind of like wades into project management territory, but like, how do we like, how do we scale some of that down so that like, these feature branches are just going multiple times a day um, into main.
0: So I I think uh, you, you have to tackle this from multiple angles. Uh, there's no single thing you can do to, to solve this, um, because it's a, it's an interwoven system. Uh, And let me just illustrate that with an example. Suppose that you magically with a snap of your fingers could, instead of creating one feature per day or one, one branch per day could now turn that same work into 100 branches per day. You wouldn't be any faster because you'd be still waiting for somebody to review your code at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah. you, you you can't do this by yourself. It requires it requires several uh, angles, um, and and also let me just jump straight ahead here. That the the smallest batch of work you can do uh, in coding is uh, a line of code that is reviewed at the same time it's written. In other words, pair programming. So if you or others on your team are comfortable with pair programming, that is an excellent way to sort of jump ahead of of what I'm going to describe in a minute, <laughs> and and get the advantage of. Uh, Uh, of this faster but let's talk about some some uh, approaches i coach teams on and that i use myself for shorter and smaller pull requests um which i I think naturally lead to the idea of pair programming especially on teams that maybe don't like the idea this leads to that because you get you get to a cadence where you're you're almost pair programming through github um but i'm getting ahead of myself so um if you're doing tdd uh you already have a cycle where your, your code is proven to work every few minutes at most. And every one of those times is an opportunity to create a pull request and, uh, and ask for review and merge. Uh, now I wouldn't, uh, practically, I don't usually create a uh, one pull request for every green cycle in my red, green refactored cycle. Um, but you could. Uh, normally I, I, you know, I, I'm working on a function. Maybe I add a, maybe I add a little bit of functionality that has five or six tests and, and I'm, and that becomes a pull request. But, uh, the point is that because if you're doing TDD, and I don't know if everybody on your team is, but if you're doing TDD, then, then you have checkpoints, frequent checkpoints that tell you it's safe to merge effectively, uh, or it's safe to create a pull request that could be merged. So, so keep that in mind. Um, the, the main thing is though, uh, just to. Merge smaller portions of functionality. Um, feature flags help this, although they're not usually necessary. Uh, I, I kind of keep those in my back pocket as a last resort. Maybe you're already using them, um, but they're kind of heavy for this sort of thing. I like to just use an if false. If I have code that's incomplete, I just, I just wrap it in if false. My tests can still run around it. Uh, I can comment out the if false for my testing. Uh, and then when I'm done, I just delete the if false. Uh, but you know that way, I can I can have yeah. my code. It's integrated. It's it, so there's no risk of conflicts with with uh, other developers because it's already in there. Uh, checkouts also.
1: I haven't done <clears throat> I haven't done a ton with like feature flagging. Like like my current company, like the fe- the feature flags we have typically are um, they're from the mobile side. So like our app is primarily an uh, iOS app. Um, and so they'll, they'll feature flag, you know, accessing certain things on, on the end or some, some new feature they want to expose to a subset of users. Um, and we don't, I, I guess I didn't really preface this at the beginning. I primarily do like, uh, backend, uh, you know, um, uh, server side development for some of our, some of our services that power the a- different applications we have. And so, um, we haven't really done much at all with uh, anything really with feature flags on our side of things i understand the benefit we did at my last job we had some server side feature flagging uh, as we wanted to try new things and, and roll out to certain percentages but not not in this current setup
0: yeah um i mean you, you definitely can use feature flags on the back end but but like i said a minute ago i i tend to kind of keep that as last resort yeah uh, basically every time you do a feature flag you're taking on technical debt which is fine if you're if you know that but there's code you have to clean up later and I, I worked at booking.com, which is famous for their AB test. And there was so much uncleaned up AB testing and feature flagging code. It was, it was a disaster. So, uh, it, it can spiral out of control very quickly if you're not very careful. So that that's, that's the main reason I, I keep feature flags sort of as a, a back pocket thing when it's necessary. It's, it's very powerful, uh, for front end, it's a lot more power. There's a lot more uh, reasons to use it, but for back end code, um, I I tend to prefer lighter weight alternatives, but the the point I was trying to make I guess is that you you can and and should merge incomplete features as long as they aren't broken. <laughs> and uh, so that you know I don't know maybe you're building up some some new authentication flow or something. You could build you know the middle part without the two end pieces first, and merge that, and then add the the end, and then add the beginning, you know, and then bundle it all together as long as the code as long as the whole application continues to work with the with these bits of unused code uh where the feature flag or a simple if false is is appropriate is when you start to wire the things up but you don't want to actually expose it yet so then then that would be the place to use that if you have a feature that's only going to take a day or two to build a a a full-fledged feature flag is probably overkill that's 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 really more appropriate if you have something that takes maybe weeks or months or involves multiple developers or Need some extra sort of care or or validation, um, but that's really the point I wanted to make is is don't be afraid to merge incomplete features
1: well, that makes sense because that that's kind of like the that that tends to be like the part where I have a hard time like uh delineating like where where I should stop on on something instead of because otherwise you know nobody wants to review uh a thousand line uh you know p r because it's just it's too much um I've been trying to, to push more. Um, I read uh, Eric Evans' uh, Domain Driven Design um, and I've been, I've been trying to integrate the... I realized after reading that that there were several like, kind of um, strategies in there that I had already used or seen, but I didn't realize that's where they came from, like the repository pattern and things like that. And so um, I've been trying to kind of chunk up, let's say a new feature, for example, like what you said, I'm, I'm actually working on some new payment flows for our application, and trying to chunk up the actual just pure domain mm-hmm. logic layer, and then um, you know different unit of work for uh, the a repository layer, a different unit of work for handlers Perfect. and stuff like that, um, and then and then stitching mm-hmm. things. Um, so I'm trying to try to f- sort of follow that that yeah uh, yeah sounds like you're on the right track.
0: Um, another another piece I, I pulled out of. Um... Michael Feather's book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. I, th- I think it's in the first chapter. He talks about four reasons to change code. Uh, he talks about adding a new functionality, fixing a bug, uh, refactoring. Uh, so you know, changing the structure of the code without changing its functionality or performance improvements. So I, I, and th- there are a few other reasons and sometimes these, there's big areas between these, but I like to use this as a general guideline to never do more than one of these in a pull request. So that, that helps keep your pull request small too, and, and but what that means is if you're working on a new feature and you discover a bug and you're tempted to fix it in your same pull request probably don't <laughs> create a new pull request to fix that bug and, and there's practical reasons for that too I mean, aside, aside from it keeping your pull request smaller, um, imagine that your feature has to be reverted for some reason in the future you don't want to revert that bug fix at the same time so it, it's, it's nice just to keep those separate oh, for that yeah, reason. Good point. Um, if you're doing a performance, if you're trying to do some performance profiling and fixing a performance bug, you don't want to, or, or not bug, but performance issue. You don't want to add new features at the same time, cause that's going to confuse your results. And so there, there's all sorts of good reasons to keep those four separate, but as it relates to this conversation, it, it's one way, it's one dimension to think of, to keep your pull requests isolated. Um, I, I'm never afraid or, or rarely afraid. <laughs> I'm never afraid. So, uh, sometimes I'm annoyed, but I'm never afraid to cherry pick some things out of, a, of out of a larger branch to a smaller one. Uh, so this usually happens, this actually is a common example of I'm working on a, a new feature and I discover a bug along the way and I fix it. And then I later go, oh, I should have done that as a separate pull request. Just just cherry pick it out um, and create a, a new uh, pull request, get that merged. Uh, maybe my, my other one's still sitting there for another hour, but at least the bug fix is down to production. Um, and then I can rebase it and it, it just takes care of itself. So don't be afraid to cherry pick little bits um, I also encourage when I'm code reviewing, I encourage my colleagues to do this sometimes if I see that they've, they've touched three different files in maybe they're kind of related ways, but like one of them could, could, could very easily be its own pull request to say, why don't you just cherry pick that out into its own pull request? I can read that faster and get that out of the way. And then we can discuss the changes. I want to, I want to discuss on these other ones or, or something like that.
1: That's a good idea. I, my, our, my team leads has, uh, my boss has recommended that a few times cause I, I have that. I end up with that problem sometimes. I say, "Oh, this this code is terrible here," and I'm like, "Let me just fix this real quick." And it's not it's it's not anything to do with what I was working on. And um, the typical response has been, "Hey, just yank that into a new one."
0: And, and that makes review so much easier, especially if it's something like formatting or you're renaming some variables because they were all confusing or something. It's so much easier just to review a variable name change as its isolated pull request versus that and a bunch of functional changes at the same time. So it, yeah, that, that's a great one. Um, those, those are my, my top suggestions off the top of my head on how to keep pull requests small. Um, but I, I think it's really important to keep in mind, as I said, at the beginning of, of this part of the conversation, if, if you're the only one doing this, it's not going to really help. You're going to end up with a pile of pull requests waiting for review. So. What I, what I always do is uh, when I'm working on teams on, on increasing the flow, that's really what we're talking about here is we're not talking about more code. We're talking about increasing flow. Uh, So we need to think of it from a systemic standpoint and a sort of a flow engineering standpoint. What we need to do then is we need to come to a working agreement as a team that code review is priority. So, so my basic rule is unless there's a fire, you know, unless the database is literally crashing and servers can't log and customers can't log in or whatever. There's some sort of incident code review is always the, the highest priority when you reach a breaking point. Uh, so you finish your task and you're, you're thinking, what's my next task. See if there's any open pull request review. If there are just review those. Uh, and uh, the, the pushback I get from this is, oh, but code review takes so long and it's boring. Yes. But if you do it this way, it's not. If you do, if you, if everybody's making quick pull requests, you're just going to spend five or 10 minutes reviewing a couple 10 line changes and, and you're probably just going to hit okay. Or maybe you make a suggestion, whatever you're going to, it's going to be quick. Uh, so you, you, you feel like you got something done. You got through three pull requests in 10 minutes. That's fine. That That doesn't feel slow and boring. It feels fast and quick. And then you go back and write another pull request. So you have to make that your priority. Uh, unblock your colleagues before you work on your own work uh, needs to be the rule of the team. And like I said, this if you do this well and you get to the point where you're making four pull requests in an hour and your colleagues are reviewing your four pull requests in an hour, pretty soon you're gonna get to the point where like, why don't we just sit down at the keyboard together and do this together? <laughs> and and your, your, pair, your pair program get that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. No, that's that's really helpful. Yeah, that's, we're, we're trying to, <laughs> Our team struggles with that a little bit. We get pull requests that are stale, or people won't review them, or it's just elongated. Even if it's a simple one, and so um, we've set up some you know, Git, GitHub's um, Slack integration. I have some some pretty handy little helpers that will do constant reminders like, "Hey, there's PR open. It's been open for a couple hours. It's waiting on you. Like, go review it." And so. Um, we're trying to, to put some of those things in place to just make it a little easier to remember, uh, to, to hop on when you have a second and give someone's PR a quick review. I think it's 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 excel it's starting to get better. The team itself is like pretty new. So I've been there a few months now and uh, all of us have been started within the last three months. So other than the 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 team, like the team lead, our boss, like she was there for the last year and the team, it was basically just her after some developers left and then took some time to hire back some new people so the team is all kind of just trying to like get our bearings on like what's what's the right way for us to do this stuff
0: so i guess one other thing if you have a pull request it's taking too long to be reviewed you're, you're, you're tired of waiting for it uh cherry pick something out of it make it smaller and your your colleagues will will be grateful that you have a smaller pull request
1: that's good that's a good idea i gonna start doing that I, i'm still like you know reading i, I think i'm planning on taking uh I got like a stipend at work. So I'm planning on taking Dave Farley's uh, TDD course. Nice. Because um, like I kind of I know this is like not quite related to the, the devel- uh, trunk-based development, it sort of is. I think like I, I think the TDD stuff like goes pretty like synergistically with it. Um, I sort of do like a, a, uh, what I would say is like a knockoff uh, version. I don't quite write the test first, but like I write like interface stubs um, that don't do anything. Um, And then I write, then I write tests based on those stubs and then I fill in the implementation. So I, I almost do it. I, so I'm trying to like, I want to take some courses to like go get actually to the next level of like the, the test driven design portion of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you that test driven development does closely relate to this. I mean, you, you can do all of these things without TDD, but I think TDD my, my experience is it makes it easier, uh, and faster. Um, which is the reason I prefer TDD. I feel like it gives me a performance boost. Uh, I know that there are there are people who think that uh, it's a waste because you're writing tests that you may not quote need, um, but you know I, I need those tests. I mean they're 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 telling me that I'm doing the, that I'm doing what I think I'm doing, and I'm not r- writing code down some rabbit hole. So um, that's another topic. But I, I do agree with you that it's it's closely related. It's, a, it's it is synergistic as you say. It's a good practice to do what these other things. But I don't want to dissuade if anybody out there hates TDD. I don't want you to think that you can't <laughs> yeah. also do these other things, you can do these without TDD, also. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I never realized how upset people get in the tech world over like, you know, do, do this, don't do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I guess it feels personal when somebody's telling you how you should cook your own food in yeah. your own kitchen. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun. I, I, I want to learn how to cook the best way, whether it whether it's my way or not. Right, I, I, I want
1: to learn the, the most effective way. One thing I've been interested in is um, it, this I guess this sort of does relate to this in terms of like you know CI CD pipelines. Um, in the I'm I'm a big fan of like infrastructure as code, and so I always um, wanted to. Uh, in the teams I was on in the past worked really hard to bake in. Uh, infrastructure as code checks, or you know, uh, the automated deployment part of it on a on a push to main uh, via the infrastructure as code. Um, what's the um, uh, is that some is that something you typically recommend to teams? Um, I, again, it's not like <clears throat> I'm not married to a tool, but like the process of that. Um, it's not something that's like easy to easy to test or validate, I guess, until it actually tr- tries to do it. Um, so that's that's something that I found to be kind of a tr- tricky until you get the initial infrastructure as code set up. Um, like how how does that work in like a continuous uh, like a CI environment? How how does that that piece work? Say for example, like our thing we talked about before, we're like cont- continuous, uh, not deployment, but um, I forgot, what was the other D we talked about? Continuous. Um, uh, d- delivery. Delivery. Yeah, that like. Yeah. We have these buildable artifacts. How does that, um, how does like IAC fit into that?
0: So infrastructure as code. Uh, I mean, it, it can fit in at different levels. Um, you could deploy your intent, your said, your entire data center with infrastructure as code in theory. Yeah, right? you can set up Terraform or something that that goes out and sets up your your EC two instances and your S three buckets. Does everything for you at that level. Um, it's kind of hard to do automated testing for that you can to an extent like you could you could deploy it and then have some scripts that see did we create the right number of instances of this and do we have the right buckets there and do they have the right permissions and whatever um it's probably not a very efficient use of testing since you know especially if using terraform we can probably trust that the tool does its job and sets things up correctly um where i have used uh Testing and infrastructure's code together is like if I'm deploying to Kubernetes, maybe with a Helm chart, and I don't know if you guys do at your work, um, but you know that, that that's kind of where infrastructure's code and code and testing all kind of they kind of merge in this in this confusing centerpiece of, of Venn diagram. Um, so you know you can, in fact, there's tools that will let you test a Helm chart, and they test it by starting potentially by starting the Helm chart in Kubernetes and running running tests against it that you've defined so you could you could create a test that you know it could be a bash script for example that checks to see that the right files exist in the right directories with the right permissions and and returns a true a true value or something like that so you can go that route if you want to Um, it's kind of an i would consider that kind of an advanced feature like i've only done that at one company uh and we only did like the bare minimum version of it we didn't set up complicated helm tests um what i have seen more often is tests that will test like a docker image to see that it doesn't have security vulnerabilities, maybe run some um, uh, static analysis or dynamic analysis against it, check, checks that you're, you don't have password files or, or SSH keys uh, in there, things like that. So you, you could do that sort of uh, testing as well. Um, really, the, the, the truth is the sky's the limit when it comes to what kind of testing you want. to If you can think of something to test, you can find a way to automate it in almost all cases. So, um, And it is good to do that for infrastructure as code, especially... For the purposes of security, um, we don't want credentials or giving the wrong uh, the wrong access to the wrong people and things like that.
1: Yeah, it's not something where we have just yet, but like all my previous roles had, were very heavy into IAC stuff, mostly Terraform, um, some other native like AWS tooling for that, but um, trying to to push us towards that. Um, for some of the stuff we're doing now, because you know it's it's notoriously brittle to have to to, to change or set stuff up in uh, in the GUI based thing on like like a, a cloud provider. So, um, and I that just makes me nervous, you know. <laughs> and so I if something it's something I think I could just automate it. I, I'd rather do that so I don't have to worry about it. Um, so but like yeah, I, in the past I just had it where it was part of the the final deployment piece was like maybe part of the commit build test part was just uh, like a say like a terraform plan or something that just like validated that a plan could be that the infrastructure could be provision in the way that you you put it up and then the actual provisioning happened only on on the merge to main or or something to that effect yeah that, that makes sense well yeah I don't I don't really have any other questions I mean again I have like other topics I I've been reading a lot about uh I read clean architecture a couple of years ago and I have been um, reading a lot about like, I don't know, a hexagonal architecture, which is sort of the same thing. I, they're all kind of yeah. the same name, but similar different names, the same topic, like right in right. architecture, hexagonal ports, adapters, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like there's a lot of synergy between those things, like domain driven design and clean architecture and mm-hmm. true CI, CD, and trunk-based development. Yep. So I'm trying to kind of like move on all that direction.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all tools designed to help us uh, keep context so that we can think about problems in a, a useful way, You know, to, to, rest, to constrain context, I mean, uh, so we aren't thinking about all the different problems at once. Uh, we're just thinking about one little bit. Uh, TDD helps yeah. with that. Hexagonal architecture. Microservices should help with that if they're done well. They usually aren't.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, <laughs> Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So yeah, <laughs> I did read an interesting thing from Uber on domain. They called it domain-driven, uh, domain-oriented, or domain-driven microservices, where they had, and we kind of did this at my last place. We had a kind of a cluster of microservices that were pretty specific, but they were all within like kind of like I guess like what you would call a bounded context in domain-driven mm-hmm. design. And so um, there was kind of like a centralized entry point and exit point um for these services but then they could kind of work together to do different things and they were there were some kind of clear separations on what they were responsible for mm-hmm. um that company was much bigger so like that made sense a smaller company that that's kind of overkill it's a lot of overhead yeah. to, to build that out
0: right right jason thanks so much for having on uh if, if people are interested in connecting with you on linkedin or I, I think you you did i assume you still do have a uh, mailing list uh, how can people get in touch with you
1: uh, yeah, I, um, I'm on LinkedIn. I post radically on there. Um, and then I have a site, it's called functionalbits.io, um, which I'm planning to kind of morph into um, right now it kind of exists as a blog site. And I host my, I have like an automated newsletter I wrote um, that pulls a bunch of like tech, um, kind of like high quality tech blogs and uh, research papers and repositories and bundles them up in a Email every day and sends them out. Um, it's something I had built for myself on my Raspberry Pi to like just serve myself stuff every day to read, and I was like, "Well, I might as well just deploy it up on a, on the cloud somewhere and s- see if other people would be interested in it." So, um, I am planning. I, I'm planning to put out a course sometime in the near future. I've been working on something related to like hexagonal architecture and domain driven design and how I use those things to build like a microservice. Um, so something something small in that regard um, that I think is kind of like a missing piece of uh, p- people learn like very basic stuff and then like there's a lot of stuff missing between there and like these other concepts. And so through experimentation, I think we can I can help some folks like bridge the gap a little bit.
0: Very cool. Great. Well, thank you, Jason, for coming on and uh, hope to be in touch with you on LinkedIn soon.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, John. All right. Cheers. <laughs>